0: The photographs came back to him. He kept his place with a finger and looked briefly up. He looks a nasty customer, he said grimly. His story confirms it. I will read out some extracts. Then we must decide. It's getting late. He turned back to the first page and began to rattle off the points that struck him. First name, James, height, 183 centimeters, weight 76 kilograms, slim build, eyes, blue, hair, black, scar down right cheek and on left shoulder, signs of plastic surgery on back of right hand, see Appendix A. All-round athlete, expert pistol shot, boxer, knife thrower, does not use disguises. Languages, French and German, smokes heavily, and be special cigarettes with three gold bands. Vices, drink but not to excess, and women, not thought to accept bribes. General G skipped a page and went on. This man is invariably armed with a 25 caliber Beretta automatic carried in a holster under his left arm. Magazine holds eight rounds. Has been known to carry a knife strapped to his left forearm. Has used steel-capped shoes. Knows the basic colds of Judo. In general, fights with tenacity and has a high tolerance of pain. See Appendix B. General G riffled through more pages giving extracts from agents reports from which this data was drawn. He came to the last page before the appendices, which gave details of the cases on which Bond had been encountered. He ran his eye to the bottom and read out, Conclusion, this man is a dangerous professional terrorist and spy. He has worked for the British Secret Service since 1938, and now, see Highsmith file of December 1950, holds the secret number 007 in that service. The 00 numerals signify an agent who has killed and who is privileged to kill on active service. There are believed to be only two other British agents with this authority. The fact that this spy was decorated with the CMG in 1953, an award usually given out only on retirement from the Secret Service, is a measure of his worth. If encountered in the field, the fact and full details to be reported to headquarters. See Schmirsch, MGB, and GRU standing orders 1951 onward. General G. shut the file and slapped his hand decisively on the cover. Well, comrades, are we agreed? Yes, said Colonel Nickton loudly. Yes, said General Slavin in a bored voice. General Vosdeshensky was looking down at his fingernails. He was sick of murder. He had enjoyed his time in England. Yes, he said, I suppose so. General G's hand went to the internal office tel- telephone. He spoke to his ADC. Death warrant, he said harshly made out in the name of James Bond. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. his adventures are about as accurate when it comes to espionage as Indiana Jones is to archaeology, I'd say that if any character comes to mind when you put the words Cold War and Spy next to one another, it will be James Bond. Played by six actors over nearly 60 years, the film series has become one of the most famous and enduring in popular culture, and it's my pop culture focus on this sixth episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit, and Two True Freaks. I'm Tom Paneris, and for this episode I'm going to be talking about the events of the end of the Cold War starting in December of 1990 and ending in February of 1991 with a closer look at the Soviet Union's role in the 1991 Gulf War, otherwise known as Operation Desert Storm. Later on in this episode, I'm going to sit down with my fellow podcaster, Andrew Leyland, to talk about Bond films, especially from Russia with Love, The Spy Who Loved Me, and The Living Daylights. It's also going to serve as a pop culture bridge of sorts, much like the last episode did with sports, as starting with the next episode... I will be spending quite a bit of time in the 1980s, and we will see how pop culture reflected our changing approach to relations with the Soviet Union before finally getting to friendly relations that came about as the Cold War wrapped up. Now, in December 1990, we are about a year away from the Soviet Union's ultimate disillusion, and you'll see that the events taking place are those that were solidifying the effects of the revolutions of 1989. Starting with December 2nd, 1990, and that is when the reunified Germany held its first national election and voted Helmut Kohl as its first chancellor. On December 7th, the National Assembly of Bulgaria holds its first free election and elects Dimitar Ilov Popov as prime minister. Slobodan Milosevic is elected president of Serbia on December ninth, and he is a key figure in post Cold War Europe because he becomes known for his role in ordering ethnic cleansing of Bosnians during the Civil War in the former Yugoslavia during the early 1990s. Milosevic would eventually be arrested for such crimes against humanity, but would die in prison in The Hague before he could put, be put on trial. That was in 2006. On December 11th, Albania's President Ramiz Alia announces free elections for the spring of 1991 following massive protests. However, on February 20th, he would dissolve the government and would appoint Fatos Nano as prime minister, overriding what his original announcement was. Over in the Soviet Union, the country's minister of foreign affairs, Edward Shevardnadze, resigned on December 20th. Uh, This is a name that I remember from back when I was younger, especially around the time that uh, Ronald Reagan was having summits with Mikhail Gorbachev in various places like Geneva and Reykjavik. Shevardnadze was, for all intents and purposes, the Soviet Secretary of State, so I would often see his name get mentioned along with Dwight Schultz, who was Reagan's Secretary of State, Uh, and that would be around the time whenever relations between the two countries would come up in the evening news. Um, I watched a lot of evening news for a while back in elementary school before falling off in, in like junior high for whatever reason. But Shevardnadze's departure from his role is pretty big, uh, especially considering his role on the international stage and in U.S.-Soviet relations in the 80s. And while I can't necessarily say this is a sign of things to come, I can tell you that uh, things will get very tumultuous in the Soviet Union going through the spring and summer of 1991, Of course, the Soviet Union ceases to exist at the end of 91, and so we are starting along that road, and you will see that as we go through uh, in the next episode especially, as more of its republics start to splinter off into independent countries. On December 22nd, Croatia adopts its constitution, and this is the same day that the Polish government in exile, which had existed since the Nazi invasion of 1939, officially dissolves itself. And the next day, on the 23rd, Slovenia's public holds a referendum on independence, and 88.5% of them say they want it. In January of ninety-one, Czechoslovakia uh, abandons its Soviet-style economy for a more free market model, and that would be solidified on February 15th in the Visegrad agreement. That agreement would move them, Hungary, and Poland toward free market economies. On January 13th, we have a major clash between Soviet forces and protesters in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, which is part of the singing revolution that I talked about in episode four. Lithuania would officially declare its independence on February 16th. Now, the biggest event during this period that I'm going over here is, at least where the United States is concerned, is Operation Desert Storm. This officially begins on January 16th, and a declaration of victory is pronounced on February 27th. But to give you some of the important timeline moments prior to this, um, I've already mentioned them in past episodes, but I'll I'll sum up a little bit. Iraq invaded Kuwait, and this set up Operation Desert Shield. This is when a coalition of forces led by the United States moves into the Arabian Peninsula, especially Saudi Arabia to use that as a staging area for what would eventually become the Gulf War. Diplomatic relations with Iraq would collapse, and the U.S. would flex its power within the United Nations Security Council to move things closer to war as 1990 closed. And then, on January 12, 1991, Congress would pass a resolution authorizing the liberation of Kuwait, and Desert Storm would officially begin on January 16th with airstrikes on both um, Kuwaiti targets and Baghdad. The ground war would commence a couple of weeks later on January 29th, with troops crossing into Kuwait on February 7th. From there, it really did not last very long. Saddam Hussein would announce the withdrawal of Iraqi troops from Kuwait on February 26th, and infamously, those troops would set fire to Kuwait's oil fields as they retreated. Those fields would burn pretty much all the way until late November of 1991. And on the next day of February 27th, 1991, President Bush would officially declare victory in the Gulf. People would come home to ticker tape parades in New York City. And uh, with the exception of incursions into Grenada and Panama in the 1980s, this really would be the United States' first significant combat operation since the end of our involvement in Vietnam. And it was our first clear victory since then. It's actually fodder for an entire podcast or podcast episode because the uh, the uh Gulf War, the attitude surrounding it, the swell of expressions of patriotism, and the popular culture that followed with it, for instance, during the time you had the resurgence of the Tony Orlando song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon, and you would see a lot of yellow ribbons around during 1991. And then there was a tribute or a charity song called Voices That Care that came out around that time as well. And as you got later into the 90s, there were a couple of movies about uh, Desert Storm. And we would see uh, a resurgence of the same feeling as we got closer to the second Iraq war in 2003. And really, like I said, uh, I I could go on and delve into Entire, uh, you know, documentaries and and music and fiction and novels and things that surround our involvement with uh, the Middle East through the '90s and into the 2000s, as well as 9/11, post-9/11, George Bush, etc. Um, it's a it's a lot, it, and it's actually way too much for the scope of this particular miniseries. But um, I do I do recommend uh, going down that that particular rabbit hole if you're interested in, in studying some of it. What I will do, though, is actually turn my focus on the Soviet Union because they were they were part of the coalition. In fact, for the first time since 1945, we were on the same side of a war in a sense. Uh, I've said in other episodes that Desert Storm, while not the first time that the United States was involved in the Middle East, did mark a significant shift in the focus of our foreign policy. And the attention that the U.S. was giving to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 had been enough to concern revolutionary leaders in Eastern Europe, because they started to wonder if their efforts were going to take a back seat uh, for the United States as a result of the Iraq-Kuwait invasion. When it comes to the Soviets and their relationship in the Middle East, especially with Iraq, it is pretty complicated. In the 1970s, the two countries became very close. Uh, Iraq bought and used Soviet arms in the Yom Kippur War. This is, if you're not familiar with it, the 1973 war between a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria against Israel the Arab states suffered a pretty humiliating defeat, and this eventually led to Egypt signing the Camp David Accords in 1978. Knowing this in terms of the Yom Kippur War and Iraq's involvement of it also helps shed more light on why, during Desert Storm, Iraq was launching scud missile attacks into Tel Aviv early in the, in the war. But the relationship back to the Soviets, the relationship between Iraq's and, Iraq and the Soviets continued through the 70s and into the 80s. Although during the Iran-Iraq war, which the United States officially took a neutral stance on, but kind of heavily uh, or or leaned toward Iraq um, because of our tensions with Iran due to the 1979 overthrow of the Shah. So um, the Soviets were were helping to arm them, although Saddam Hussein, the, the leader of Iraq, was trying to not rely on them too much because he felt that if he did, his country would wind up becoming a glorified Soviet satellite. It was probably a very real possibility considering that at this time, the Soviets still had some sort of, uh, you know, might behind their military. You know, they had invaded Afghanistan in 1979 and this particular war began in 1980 when Iraq invaded Iran. So, you could see that the Soviets would try to use this to advantage their advantage in some way. Now, the Iran-Iraq war ended more or less in a stalemate and a UN-brokered ceasefire in 1988. And with the Soviet failure in Afghanistan becoming more apparent as the 80s closed and really ending, um, I think, in about 89 or 90, uh, Iraq's efforts at self-determination at the time, back in the 70s and 80s, did proved fortuitous. They were not a Soviet satellite state, and they were not over-reliant on them. But it also meant that the relationship between the Soviets and Iraq was tenuous. The Soviets did not favor all of its allies' decisions, and they were especially critical of the invasion of Kuwait, and they supported the United Nations embargo and eventual resolution to use military force. But the USSR did continue to sell arms to Iraq, and that did not make the United States happy. Now, I do have to say that around this time, there were some estimates of how many, ar- how much armament was going into Iraq from the Soviet Union. But it is a matter of dispute because the source that I, sa- because the source that I found said uh, that the Heritage Foundation is quoted as saying privately the Pentagon says that there are 3,000 to 4,000 Soviet military advisors in Iraq, and this was about 1990 or so. But I tend to call anything from the Heritage Foundation into question, since they push a blatantly partisan agenda. Plus the phrasing, privately the Pentagon says this, is very McCarthyist in its approach. What's not in question, though, is that There is a very complicated relationship between the U.S., Iraq, and the Soviet Union when it comes to the 1991 Gulf War. The Soviet Union was part of the coalition, yes. Were they selling arms? Probably uh, how much is in dispute. But it also was pushing Moscow to reevaluate its tactics. And and I found this uh, article from the journal Foreign Affairs from 1991 that really goes into this. Now, I have to admit, I only read the first paragraph because the rest of it was behind a paywall. But in reading the lead paragraph, its writer, Graham E. Fuller, says, The war in the Persian Gulf posed a major and untimely crisis for Soviet foreign policy. The drama and pace of Operation Desert Storm tended to distract American attention from the spectacle of Moscow's own confused, shifting, contentious, and contradictory approaches to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and the American response. At several points in the crisis, it was uncertain just how firmly Moscow's principles of quote, new thinking in foreign policy would hold. In the end, Moscow did indeed sustain its general commitment to all UN resolutions on Iraq but only with a process that proved deeply unsettling within the Soviet Union. This process afforded the world an unprecedented window on the making of Soviet foreign policy in the Gorbachev era. It provided the best understanding yet of the extraordinary complex factors currently competing for a voice in Moscow's foreign policy. And I should also mention that it was also speculated at this time, at least according to a declassified CIA document, That desert storm would mark a shift in Soviet military tactics, and the CIA was maintaining what appeared to be some pretty vast disagreements between various Soviet military officials over how to win the war, if the U.S. could win, and it took a very serious look at the concept of precision strikes as opposed to ground attacks and other then-conventional methods. The impact of newer technology at the time was also a big debate. And, you know, I, I don't follow a lot of the kind of rules and game of warfare, so to, in a manner of speaking, but, you know, I think even the layman can say that Desert Storm did start to mark not only the beginning of a post-Cold War combat era, but that idea of a precision strike, which... You know, it's a term that that can be a bit of a misnomer when you really break it down. But but for for the sake of my point here, I'll I'll use it Um, as opposed to say the really just carpet bombing we had done in World War II and then like especially in in Vietnam really becomes a tactic that we are uh, that we are still in use today. But then again, the nature of the the combat that we're fighting. Is also different in some regards too, but uh, you know this is the you know we have we have Patriot missiles and Tomahawk missiles um, fighting against other missiles, and um, we have the precursors or the early versions of uh, surgical drone strikes and things like that. So there is a there is a discussion about this newer technology, and I think they were also probably speculating over what was. Left, what the Soviets were going to do, and and really what they had left, uh, you know, the, the the failure in Afghanistan decimated a generation in the way that the Vietnam War did to the United States, and the country was in serious economic strife going through the ni- late 1980s, partially due to Afghanistan. So while we are developing weapons that are much different and more advanced. And starting to change the way certain things are done, we are also wondering, is the Soviet Union keeping up the way they used to? Or will they post-desert storms? So there were a lot of questions about how things would go as 1991 and then the 90s rolled on. And I'll get to some of 1991 in my next history segment, because... As we go through the year, like I said, things start to deteriorate pretty rapidly in the Soviet Union. And by December 31st, it's gone. But next up, I've got Andy Leyland on, and we are going to go back to the 1960s through the 70s and the 80s to talk about James Bond. So I'm going to play a trailer and come back for that.
1: To Russia. I flew, but there and then I suddenly knew you'd care. To you from Russia. The Long Halloween, Hush, Dark Knight Returns, The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about, and talked about, countless times over the years. They are considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat comics that are being attacked and overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index index show. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show comes out twice a month, with the first episode focusing on the back books from the late 70s and early 80s.
2: We're starting with the Len Wein run and working our way forward through the books written by Jerry Conway and eventually
1: Doug Mensch. On the second episode of the month, we'll dig into the various adventure comics that were based on the Fox Kids slash Kids WB Batman animated shows because they're really good and hardly anyone seems to remember that they exist. The show can be found at the Fortress of Bailytude podcasting network, which is located at www.fortressofbailytude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember
2: or care about.
1: Because somebody has to.
0: In the first episode of this mini series, I looked at John Le Carré's The Spy Who Came in from the Cold, a 1963 novel that featured a climax of the Berlin Wall, as it was pertinent to the subject matter of my episode. Le Carré, who recently passed as of this recording, was known for writing taut thrillers that were exceptional for their realism, and the spy genre was thrilling to Cold War audiences. After all, there were spies everywhere, it seemed, from the American CIA to the Soviet KGB and Britain's MI6. But as well-known and rightly celebrated as John Le Carre is, no spy novel author, or at least his character, is more well-known than one written by Le Carre's countryman, Ian Fleming, and that is Agent 007, James Bond. Fleming wrote 12 novels featuring Bond, and since Dr. No premiered in 1962... There have been 24 films produced by Eon Productions, with the 25th scheduled to be released, I believe, in 2021. And if we count the 1967 spoof version of Casino Royale, as well as 1983's Never Say Never Again, that's a total of 27 movies. In that time, Bond has been played by six actors, Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and Daniel Craig. And to wrap up, my uh, intro is more of a spy superhero or spy fantasy character than, say, any secret agent whose adventures are grounded in in reality. I could do an entire podcast on Bond. I'm sure there are entire podcasts on Bond, as he has a mythology as rich as any of the comics or space fantasy heroes my fellow podcasters and I talk about. But for this segment, I'm going to focus on two films from the Cold War era and starring two of the most well-known James Bond actors, 1963's From Russia With Love, starring Sean Connery, and 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, starring Roger Moore. And coming along with me is the host of the Palace of Glittering Delights here on the Choo Choo Freaks Network, as well as the Overlooked Dark Knight on the Fortress of Bailey's Network, my
2: friend, Andrew Leyland. How are you doing, Andy? Hello. I'm Tickety Boat. I should have introduced myself Leyland. <laughs> Andrew Leyland. That would have yes. been better, wouldn't it? Would have been more appropriate. <laughs> anyway. We'll do all oh, of those. Oh, yeah. This. <laughs> Because the
0: editing here on this show is so precise. Um, <laughs> so, uh, judging by your accent, you're from you know New Jersey now, um, England. Um, I was. We're from we're from Escape New York, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I wanted, you know, just I wanted to have you on to do this uh, because it's particularly on brand. But at the same time, um, I know you're a fan and I know and I, I've always been kind of curious as to, I don't know, like, is, is James Bond just something that is like there, like Superman or Batman or something over in, you know, where you grew up? Like, you know, was it something that always existed and you just it was just right around the time that you had to find it or um you know like how did you how did you first discover um james bond like what was your first movie
2: uh my first movie was Mm. diamonds are forever which i remember seeing on television in the mid-1970s no the the superman analogy is probably the most apt James Bond is our Superman. He's our pop culture mythological figure that is basically all around. You can't get away from him. ITV have owned the exclusive rights for the James Bond film since the mid-1970s, and they are on almost permanent rerun, especially now that there's cable channels with ITV 2, 3, and 4. Diamonds Are Forever was on mm. this for the afternoon. As we record this. That's how ubiquitous they are. And even over summer, over the summer of lockdown, ITV's um, battle in the ratings war, how ITV fought the ratings war, was to show a selection of the best Bond movies. And 55 years old, some of them may be, they scored big in the ratings. So that's how popular James Bond is. Even after all this time, and no matter how many times they've been on telly, they still score top ten ratings when they're shown on primetime network television. If there isn't another film franchise, I think, that can can even equal that, that is that old and that long-lived. Yeah. Um, Harry Potter may have made more money worldwide, but everyone knows who James Bond is. It's, it's the same, again, with the Superman thing to America. It's the silhouette. It's mm-hmm. the bow tie, the gun the the tux and you know who you're talking about straight away yeah i caught diamonds are forever on on tv god i wasn't very old i must have only been like 4 or 5 or something like that that i saw diamonds are forever uh and i was instantly hooked by it because it is the one that it's ostensibly it picks up from the end of on a majesty's secret service <laughs> it doesn't really <laughs> It's James Bond looking out for Blofeld for reasons that I didn't know because they don't mention in (laughs) Diamonds Are Forever he's hunting him because he murdered his wife. It's like they want to brush that under the carpet as swiftly as as possible. But that opening bit where he drowns Charles Grey in the clay just stuck with me. And Connery's past his prime in that movie, but Connery was just ineffably cool anyway. So even a past his prime Connery is cooler than... Any other man who's ever walked on this planet with the possible exception of Timothy Oliphant and Stephen mm. Queen. So, you know, even then I knew there was something to this guy, even in seventies fashions where he doesn't look his best. That <sighs> pink tie is especially egregious. Um, and then the next one I remember seeing was a Christmas day screen and a gold, gold mm. finger, no golden eye, obviously. I remember seeing Goldfinger and then that was pretty much it. I was like, well, every time there is one on, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it, I will rewatch it. And I can watch them all. You know, Die Another Day is utter shit in its last hour. I can still watch it and love it. And the same with A View to a Kill. Roger Roger Moore has, has, has had his day by that point. But I can still sit and watch it and thoroughly enjoy it. And I think ultimately that's what Bond has added to the culture. It's just fun. Mm-hmm. You know, beyond the first three... And then, obviously, the Latter-day Daniel Craig ones, it's not supposed to be taken terribly seriously. And even the Roger Moore ones, where they went too far over the camp line, they they tried, bless them, to pull back with For Your yeah. Eyes Only, after the double-take pigeon of oh. Moonacre. <laughs> but... I was first introduced to the Ian Fleming version of Bond. I'm sure I read a couple of them in in high school from the library. I don't remember exactly. But then they started republishing them all with pulp covers. Mm. So proper lurid naked women on the covers kind of things. And I collected all of them. And I sat and read pretty much all of them whilst ostensibly watching my daughter do her ballet (laughs) lessons on Saturday mornings. I just sat there reading Ian Fleming James Bond novels, and I think I got as far as on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I I think I've read the others subsequent to that, but I don't, I don't, I think they're his best ones, Mm -hmm. his early ones, are the better ones. But the Ian Fleming Bond is, he's the same guy, you know, if you squint a bit, but he's, he's a lot more refined, I think, than the movie James Bond. He's a lot more of a cultural snob. Which you only really come across in the movies when, when Connery's Bob disses the Beatles. <laughs> like listening to the Beatles yeah. without earbuffs. Yeah, and I was I
0: mentioned and I mentioned like Harry, because I mentioned the spy who came up for the cold, that and, and the, the film version is Richard Burton, who like in every movie I've seen him, and even the nineteen eighty four adaptation, he always looks like he's like three drinks in, you know, and <laughs> <laughs>
2: Burton it's Burton. Like, or
0: or in case the spy he beaming from the cold, he actually looks like he's kind of like hung over and has and the, the you know the expression hair of the dog just kept going. It's yeah.
1: it just didn't And that is everything. you know, that's
0: not Bond is like the as far as his, his his stature and I didn't know that the character that Burton plays in that movie is not the main Lake spy, but at the same time it's like Bond is this like we were saying right before we went on, there's the Male wish fulfillment about him, that suave, classy, gonna get the ladies type of thing. And you're right, Connery, we'll get to this when we get into from Russia. But Connery has this way of doing all of that with barely saying a word. And I'm glad you mentioned mm-hmm. Steve McQueen cause Steve McQueen could be cool with just staring at the camera for ten seconds. It's just this thing that like some some men and some actors have naturally. And they use to their best advantage.
2: Yeah, the the camera just adores them doing yeah. nothing. Clint Eastwood's mm-hmm. the same. Clint Eastwood could do nothing on screen and be eminently yeah. watchable. Yeah. There's no there's no flasher or anything to them. They can Connery can just sit at a at a what's his name, at a baccarat mm-hmm. table and you're watching him. You know your your eyes are on him. And isn't that what we all want? We want to be able to walk into a room and women yeah. stare at us, and men be afraid of us. And we want cool cars, and we want to be able to use gadgets without like <laughs> ever once reading the instruction manual. Yeah.
0: But there's a there's a local uh, uh, former actress who lives in this area, uh, Lisa Jacob, who played one of the daughters in um, Mrs. Doubtfire. And recently, about a couple of years ago, they did one of those Today Show reunion things where they got all the cast members back together. And she, she was—I follow her on on Twitter, you know, on social media and stuff—and she says, um, you know, 25 years after this, apparently, like P- Pierce Brosnan really is like even more attractive in real life than he appears to be on screen. <laughs> and it's just—it's—it is funny how they get, you know, like they—they they really do know how to cast this role. Um, my origin story actually is is a bit later. Um, Bond was actually always around mainly because uh, you mentioned ITV, but through the eighties, especially, um, ABC had the rights to the Bond movies, and they they ran the ABC Sunday night movie was you know uh, was a thing. You know, every once I don't know if it was every week or it was every couple of weeks or whatever. And you know, all the networks, especially during the eighties, had that. You know, that they would try to show like some big feature film, you know, because it was it was ratings, believe it or not. And ABC, I always remember them for two movie franchises. One was the Donner Superman films, or the the Donner Lester etc. from Superman one, two, and three, and then the Bond movies. Um, and I saw all of those like here and there in bits and pieces over the years. Like I, I've, you know, when I was younger, I, I remember seeing bits of like the, I remember the intro for your eyes only, um, uh, some of on your Majesty's secret service, et cetera. But the first one of them I saw, believe it or not, was in 1987, my friends and I went to see the living daylights at the local movie theater. Cause by that point mm. we had been seeing, and again, like I've said this a million times, how in their right mind did my parents think it was okay for me to watch Schwarzenegger movies at ten years old? And for my dad took me and my friend at ten to see RoboCop in the theater. I mean, like, <laughs> just <laughs> it was a different time. Anyway, we went to see it. We really liked it, and we came home. and I remember um, telling my dad about it, and he was telling me how you know my dad's seventy five this year, so he was um, seventeen. I think if I'm doing the math correctly in 1962 and Dr. No came out and he was talking, he told us about mm-hmm. like, you know how blown away him and his friends were after seeing that in the theater. Cause they did not know what to expect from it. You know? So we read, we rode our bikes to the video store and rented Dr. No. And then I rented the only one I couldn't find was from Russia with love, believe it or not, because it was out until it finally came in. But I rented Goldfinger and and, and like all the Connery ones, um, When I was a kid, You Only Live Twice was my favourite, for obvious reasons. The climactic battle is a bunch of ninjas in a volcano base. I was...
2: Yes. I was watching G.I.
0: Joe at the time, I mean...
2: (laughs) Well, my only problem with You Only Live Twice is if you watch it, Bond doesn't do anything in You Only Live Twice. (laughs) That that film works out just fine if (laughs) James Bond isn't even there... Because basically, he just sits back and lets the CIA handle everything. Now, you can probably argue that's the way you would go about it. It's a CIA case. It's a CIA investigation. He's only there because the British Secret Service have a piece of information that they need but it doesn't make for a really entertaining climax to the movie that you sat there when you watch it knowing that, going, Bob doesn't really affect this movie oh, in yeah. any way.
0: But when you're 10,
2: it's ninjas. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there are, there are some excellent fight yeah. scenes in, in uh, yeah. You Only Live Twice. It is a great it yeah. is a great film. It's it's the one that calls Connery to quit. Yeah, yeah the, the, going back to ever so slightly, uh, in the 70s, the cinema chains tried to sue Eon. Or United Artists, whichever, for selling the Connery Bonds to ITV because they were still packing them in at the cinemas. In the in the early in the mid seventies, they could put a Connery Bond film on for like a matinee or whatever, and it would still pack people in. And it's one of those things. If you know, when everything eventually goes back to normal, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I would love somebody to because one of the things that's been keeping independent cinemas ticking over over here is they've been showing. Mm-hmm. old movies. From Russia with Love is on in Liverpool as we speak. Oh wow! It was getting screened at 1555. So it started just under an hour ago as we record in this. So I would love to go and see a couple of them on the big screen. But Thunderball is probably fantastic mm. on the big screen. I have never seen any of the Connery Bonds on Neither the big have screen. I. In
0: fact, I don't think I've ever seen any of the ones the Connery or Moore ones because I've never seen them playing um, funny enough, the company that used to make—I uh, don't know if they—they they, how much they made—but um, Disney for years would re-release its classic cartoons into theaters, and those would hmm. yeah, Every and then seven those years. would show up in box office like top 20, twenty, thirty lists. You know, a re-release of something like Snow White yep. would pack it in because you know again the the appeal of that. Um, we have a couple of second run and in, in independent theaters around here, but I haven't, I have yet to see a Bond. Um showing um, I saw close encounters at one of them a couple of years about a year or two ago, but uh, but you know I would love to, I would love to see one of these on the big screen. To this day, I've only seen um, a handful of them and watched most of them on on video and' I'm, I'm a couple of films behind in the Daniel Craig ones. I just it was uh, the la, you know I'm, I'm finally catching up on all the movies that I lost out on when I first had my kid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hmm. yeah
2: you do fall yeah, off a little bit, though, yeah. You?
0: i kept up with uh star wars and that was about it so um do you before we go on do you have a favorite actor playing
2: playing the role at the moment it's mm. daniel craig because there's an intensity to craig that we haven't seen since mm-hmm. connery and there's also a feeling with daniel craig that this man is dangerous and now, when you talk about they know how to cast that role, Daniel Craig to us was he was in Our Friends in the North, which was a BBC show that he starred in with Christopher Eccleston, and we'd seen him in a film called Endless Love, where he plays this geeky gawky writer. He's completely nebbish in it to uh, Reese Evans, who who's just become obsessed and fascinated with him. It's like Fatal Attraction, but 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 yeah, okay. basically. And he's absolutely fantastic in it. But you're watching that going, and we saw it after it was announced he was going to be Bond, but obviously before Casino Royale came out. And we're watching it going, this is going to be James Bond. (laughs) And it's one of those things where you forget, you know, they're actors. They don't have to be the nationality that they play. They don't have to have the same religious beliefs of Mm -hmm. their character. They can be completely different from those things and still pull it off. And I think Craig has pulled off the most like Fleming like without being a slavish imitation of what Fleming did because it is no longer nineteen fifty, which is when they were originally written. Yeah. He is he is granite. You believe this man would kill you as as quick as look at you, and you believe that he will shag your mum and your wife and your girlfriend whilst he's doing it. (sighs) He is absolutely fantastic in it. And they're going to have a hard time replacing him because I think for the first time ever, they've buried the memory of Connery, which none of the others managed to do. They were always compared to Connery and Daniel Craig has pushed past and through that.
0: Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Cause Connery was always my, has always been my favorite. And, um, and Craig's a, a very close second for that reason. He's, he's like the, heir apparent or the kind of the air to that. Hmm. Whereas I, I mean, I liked, um, I've, I vividly remember golden eye and the other ones I kind of remember seeing, but don't remember much of the older Brosnan. The Brosnan, Brosnan reminds me a lot of Roger Moore anyway, even yeah. though, but like Brosnan was this sort of him becoming James Bond was like, they had been trying to get him for years. He was, he was supposed to be in the living daylights, but NBC had Remington Steele. The whole, the whole backstory behind that is a total, you know, mm-hmm. other conversation. But, but yeah, he was him and Dalton were the two that I remember seeing the most of in the theater over the years. And, um, but yeah, Connery, Connery and Craig both have that. And Craig is really cold. Connery is a little more of a, a little more of a prick, <laughs> in a sense.
2: Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think Connery is a bit more of a prick as James Bond than, than Daniel yeah. Craig is. Daniel Craig just comes across mm-hmm. as aloof. Yeah. He doesn't come across as someone that deals with small yeah. talk. It's still best summed up by Casino mm-hmm. Royale. Uh, the, that scene in Casino Royale with the parkour guy. Yeah, 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 Flash and Spider-Man like leaping from girder to girder. And Bond just runs <laughs> through the wall. And if there is a better visual representation of what he is... I've yeah. not seen it. F- fuck being a show showoffy. I'm just going to run through the wall.
0: Yeah, it, it's like Indy shooting the uh, sword guy. <laughs> yeah,
2: Indiana Jones and James Bond would have oh, gotten yeah, on very yeah. well together.
0: And I will say, like, um, I've seen, I've watched, you know, you and I have watched a lot of these movies, and um, I think Quantum of Solace is kind of a mess. But that opening car chase is it's so brilliant. good, and. Um, intercut with the, uh, the horse race in, um, in that the, the, the city is escaping me, but it's in Italy. And I actually watched a travel show
2: because
0: it It was on PBS.
2: The thing with the, the problem with quantum solace is it's incredibly lopsided. Mm -hmm. It's like the first 45 minutes of chase, chase, action scene, chase, chase, action scene. And it's all that irritating shaky cam. That was, that was a big thing for 20 minutes because of Nolan and 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 the the bone identity. Yeah, and the bone identity, absolutely right. And then the rest of the film, the actual plot, I can never remember for the life of me. And it's something to do with water in the desert and somebody stealing. And I'm like, what the hell has this got to do with James yeah, Bond? Yeah, there's a couple of
0: those movies. There are a couple of Bond movies where it's like, what actually is the plot of this movie other than getting, yes. than getting James Bond into car chases and using gadgets and fights? Um, from Russia With Love, to set up a segue here, actually has kind of a plot. It's actually... It's a very yeah, it's, plot. it's it's. To me, it's the most Cold War spy plot of them. So the, the, the movie premiered in, uh, in 63. It's the second in the series um, after Dr. No. It's based on Fleming's fifth Bond novel. And, um, and it's a f- fairly faithful adaptation as far as uh, adaptations of those movies go. The plot, just in a very brief sort of you know, TV guide type of, of way, is that um, a Soviet clerk named Tatyana Romanova um, apparently is defecting. And more importantly, she has access to a lector, which is a, a cryptographic device, um, kind of like the Enigma machine. And um, Bond's mission is to meet up with her in Istanbul and get her back to Western Europe with the lector. Uh, of course, this is actually a huge trap. that, And it's a trap set up not by the Soviets, but by Spectre, which is the international terrorist organization that is kind of... Eh, People, kids from the '80s in America, it's like Cobra. You <laughs> know, it's just like, and yeah. um, they want Bond dead mainly because um, Doctor No was an operative of Spectre, and uh, and and that's what the hinges on. The, the thing it felt the most cold to me, and um, it, it's it's also very. It reminded me of Hitchcock films like North by Northwest, which I think ha- it has a couple of visual references yes. to North by Northwest. And there's also a yeah. MacGuffin in the in the plot, which is the lector and, and of course the the girl. Um, and we have a couple of things that are established or reinforced uh, for the for the franchise here. We have Q makes his first appearance. So and we have a couple of really good gadgets.
2: But not, not Major Booth first no. appearance. Because the guy who played Booth in Doctor No was not mm-hmm. available. And they are supposed to be the same character. Ah,
0: okay. But then we have the... Um... And I don't. I, I have to. It's been a while since I've seen Doctor No, but I can't remember if they like um, every Bond films. Very often have sort of this this heavy, this this strong man sort of villain character, the enforcer. Mm. And in this one, it's uh, of of all people, Robert Shaw, of Jaws fame.
2: Yeah, and the he, best, Robert Robert Shaw yeah. is
0: easily the best.
2: Jaws is a little bit too campy. He is, although I think
0: Jaws is one of the more notable ones, um, along with um, Odd Job from. Goldfinger because of yeah. the, the hat, and possibly because of the parody of him in, in um, the Austin Powers movies. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Shaw is really good. Donald Red Grant. And then you have uh, easily one of the most fam- bon- famous Bond villainesses of all time, <laughs> Lottie Lenya is Rosa Klebb, because yep. she's got the knife point in her shoe. She is the Russian intelligence general. Yeah. Back who who is the, who has actually gone over to Spectre, but she's kind of essentially working undercover for them. Um, I don't know. This this
2: is, um, out of the Connery ones, this is my favorite one. It's my favorite one as well, because the plot is complex without being complicated. Mm-hmm. Like you said, some of the later ones, you're like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here, and why is this a James Bond plot? Quantum of Solace being yeah. the primary one. But the so the plot to this one is is the the spectre like you say I've got this device it's a trap they want Bond out of the way because of him killing Doctor No so that in itself is unusual in that it is a direct sequel which they wouldn't really do again until Casino Royale and mm-hmm. Quantum of Solace apart from obviously the pre credit sequence of Diamonds Are Forever by and large they start making them stand alone unless you count the build up to actually seeing Blowfelt. Which only happens in, in Diamond No, you only live there. twice. Ants. There's Donald Pleasants in there, there. yeah. <laughs> yes, Donald Pleasants, yeah. Yeah. I'm mixing them up. So it is easy to mix them up when you've seen them all so many times. But what I like about this one is it, it's not an earth shattering event. The world isn't in danger here. It's almost a proper Cold War spy thriller of a kind that they would not get back to until, again, the Daniel Craig era. Yeah. And that's where I think the North by Northwest comparisons come through. What Bond is doing here is essentially it's mm-hmm. a spy mission. He knows it's a trap. M knows it's a trap. But the risk is too great to not spring the trap, as Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah. would say. And I love – it's 15 minutes, this film, before Bond shows mm-hmm. up, because technically the guy in the pre-credit sequence isn't James Bond.
0: No, it's like a training exercise because they, they, they're, they're training yeah. – um, they're training Robert Shaw's character to uh, to, you know, to kill to kill him, and you know they they, they hit the, he kills the he sneak Bond seems to be sneaking around. He gets choked to death or whatever, and then all the floodlights come up, and it's like you know exercise is over. And um, but the, this is why I say he's faithful to the novel because Bond doesn't show up in the novel for like a, at least a couple of chapters. The the whole beginning of the novel yeah. is this guy, the backstory on this guy, Donald Grant. And then him being trained by Spectre to basically be there. They need a very strong assassin because they know how tough James Bond is going to be to kill.
2: Yeah, and it's so much of it is, is happenstance and mistakes. Mm. Like the, the, the it's only a pre credit sequence because of a last minute editing decision, and basically they created the template for the films with that yeah. mistake, not mistake, but that decision created the template for the movies. So a pre credit sequence, an elaborate opening title it still follows that template to this day it's probably the only film franchise that still has opening titles
0: yeah in in the um to the extent that they that they actually have credits beyond just the title of the movie and then there's a bunch like there's a bunch of MCU mm. movies that don't even have the the title of the movie until the end of the movie which drives yeah. me nuts
1: yeah
2: yeah it just yeah. starts yeah. and and carries on and that's another thing to love about from Russia with love it's got the requisite action and beautiful women, arguably some of the most beautiful women of any of the Bond movies in Daniela mm-hmm. Bianchi. And um, and Sylvia Trench mm-hmm. at the beginning is is quite lovely as well. Eunice Gray. Uh, but it's also it takes its time to set the story up. And it's got a remarkably good, colourful cohort of supporting characters like Karen Bay. I mean, he's following on from Quarrel in from Doctor No, obviously, so that precedent was already set. But for me, everyone points to Goldfinger as the one where it all fell into place. I think Goldfinger is where it starts teetering over into over-the-top ridiculousness, which isn't a bad thing. I, I don't get me wrong at all, but From Russia with Love is played straight for the most part. The fight scene at the end is oh still yeah good. yeah,
0: and uh, you know and and I'll uh, and I'll get back to that in a second. Goldfinger is a good example of it teetering over because hey, Goldfinger I, I like that movie. It's a little too long, and Goldfinger is his first almost like well Doctor No's kind of a supervillain, but there's the Goldfinger is the template for the character we'll get in the Spy Who Loved Me, the crazy billionaire who's out for some sort of something world domination if what some, some yeah.
2: world domination for reasons that is never
1: yeah yeah with the
0: trap but with goldfinger the traps get a little more elaborate you know no mr bond i expect you to die and the, the laser going right at his his crotch mm. um with this yeah you're right
2: <laughs> the only time he looked <laughs> worried <laughs> make of that what you will
0: so um with uh but yeah you're right the fight in this and this is this is a film that um you know, there are uh, you could trim things here and there. There's this whole sequence where they go to um, where he, he's undercover in Istanbul, and they go to this uh, Roma camp, gypsy camp, and there's this whole cat fight scene that's totally unnecessary. Except it's it, yeah. it's like a women in prison movie, basically. And the only reason to have that there is because you have two beautiful women fighting with each other. You know, the, the movie defines the male gaze. If you're not, <laughs> but. It, But it's a James Bond.
2: What other reason would there be for James Bond to say? I know, I know. You know, because his lines in this one are funny without being Mm -hmm. smarmy, which was the problem I think that Pierce Brosnan had, is that he couldn't always deliver the double entendres in the same way that Connery, and and even Moore Mm -hmm. could do. Moore had a, a sly glint in his eye. The more I'd the, uh, I know you're not really taking this seriously, Connery delivered it like, you know, I am going to follow through on this later on in more ways than one. Pierce Brosnan was perhaps a little bit more smarmy, but um, I think my mouth is too big. No, it's just big enough for me. And then, and it's yeah. just, just the right side of Connery yeah. and delivered well. Like when the the spy gets shot, Coming out of the poster of Anita Ekberg's mouth, she should have yeah. kept her mouth shut. It's, it's funny. He, it's funny. It's still funny stuff without being.
0: Yeah, ooh. he he knew. It's Connery. With Connery, it's the delivery. You're right because he knew he knew to take a yeah. beat where he had to, and he knew, like how to hit the line. Because Moore does it well, but there are times when Moore does it and it just it it doesn't it doesn't hit as well. And Dalton never got it
2: right. Um, no, Dalton was no good at the double entendre yeah. one-liners, which was Timothy Dalton's only fault. Which is a shame, really, because in later years he's gotten better at it. Yes, yeah. I think the problem with Timothy Dalton is he was, as an actor, he wasn't quite mm-hmm. there yet. He he looked good in the
0: action sequences, though. I will, you know, I I, mm. I we'll get to the Living Daylights a little bit for a little bit later, but I having recently rewatched that, I was like, oh, this my movie is like way better than I think i would have ever given it credit for and part of it is those those action sequences and you know that does have a bit of an 80s cold war plot too which is why i wanted to mention it but this one with from russia would love the thing i think one of the things that makes the the train sequence with the fight on the train car um so great is 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 how brutal it is how claustrophobic it is um, cause it's in, mm-hmm. it's in like a two room, two rooms of a train car and, and it's, there's not a lot of room for them to fight and it's shot really, you know, close to each other. And that movie is really tense for a big portion of it, especially when they get on the, they get on the Orient express going back to, um, Vienna or wherever they're somewhere, somewhere over the Austrian border, wherever they're headed. Mm-hmm. And, um, And it's, uh, they eventually end up in Venice, I think. So they're, they're heading back to the West. And it's this whole, um, you know, them having to get off at certain stations and kind of keep their cover up. Um, his friend gets knifed because Grant's been on the train the entire time. And the other thing is that they're blackmailing him with the fact that they have him and, um, Tatiana sleeping together on tape in the hotel room. He had in Istanbul. I mean, the whole, the whole thing was, there were spies everywhere and mm. it, it's not a foregone conclusion that he's going to get out of this whole thing alive when you're looking at what Robert Shaw's character is capable of.
2: Yeah. There's, there's a genuine, there's a genuine thrill and fear yeah. to it. Whereas there isn't to the yeah. letter Cause he gets him, he,
0: he eventually kills him after he's able to trigger something in the, in the trick, uh, briefcase or suitcase that he has.
2: Yeah, the most low-key gadget in Bond history. He does it in like... Because sometimes you've
0: got those setups where the gadget is going to be the thing that kills the guy. Like in GoldenEye, Alan Cumming has the pen that you click it enough times into whatever Mm -hmm. and we're all waiting for him to do it enough times. and There's misfire and misfire and he finally does it and it's like the whole thing hinges on that. In From Russia With Love, it's like it's like on bond remembers he's got the thing with him and he's like, okay, I need to get him to, I, I need to get to this, to do it. It's like, you know, this is my ace in the hole that he almost had forgotten about up until that point. You know, it's not like he was waiting to use it or something. And, and, and that's just, it's a, it gives him that moment that he needs to be able to kill this guy.
2: Yeah. Well, see the golden eye that the thing comes from the tension of, you can see Brosnan counting. Mm-hmm how many times he clicks it. That's where the... Because t- it wants No. One, two, three, no. One, No. Come on. Come on. That's really well done yeah. by Brosnan yeah. in that one. Because he knows that we know how many times yeah. he has to click it. And that's where the tension from that comes from. The thing with this is, it's not been as signposted as readily as that. Throughout GoldenEye, Alan Cummings played mm-hmm. with pens so it's it's all the way through the film whereas in this you've got the Q briefing at the beginning and then the suitcase is barely yeah. referenced again before it comes yeah. into play at the end my favourite part of this, the only thing I think of this one is slightly campy is that Spectre's this big top secret organisation and no one can find them and no one knows who they are and I'm just thinking why don't you just look at a map and look for Spectre <sighs> Island <laughs> this is true why would you call it Spectre Island? <laughs> it's like, hey, we're here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, that's the only bit that stood out to me when I rewatched it for this. I mean, But it is one of those things I've seen from Russia's Love many, mm-hmm. many, many times. I did not. I never just went right over me yeah. Right yeah. I did, like... On it. That's Batman's that level of absurd. That is, um, and, and, the, what, and one of the cool
0: things is is that like a very often a lot of the, uh, the those those battle with this tough guy, the strong man, ends. It, it, it's one of the climactic battles of the movie, and this it is a climactic moment. But there's 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 actually more to the film after that because this is where mm. they they flee the train because they realize they're not safe. So they're in like Yugoslavia, and you get this sort of North by Northwest homage with the helicopter flying about and trying to kill them. And then he's got that great scene where he, they're on a, the boat and uh, shooting up the gas tanks with the flare gun and stuff. And then they eventually make it to, for, to Venice. And of course, you know, he's there together at the end in the hotel room because, you know, he, that's bond bon does, you know? <laughs> he, get he wins and he does get the girl.
1: And he then Rosa Klebb comes
0: in, and um, in the novel, he, she actually gets him, and the novel ends with him yes. passing out. he killed, Fleming killed him Yeah, her. and yeah. then he brings him back for the next one, miraculously at the last second, you know. But uh, here, it's uh, it's not him, it's, it's Tatiana who actually kills her, you know, by, um, because she was, she was the one, Tatiana was supposed to be the, she was basically the, um, kind of a dupe, you know, She's the lure, hmm. and um, and when when we realize that Rosa Klebb is working for Spectre and not Mother Russia, you know, although the Klebb barks orders at her to get out, and then eventually, you know, Romanova kills her. It, it's a great scene too, and it's one of the more iconic fight scenes from from the Bond fa- franchise yeah. because people always remember even before Austin Powers, people remembered her with the knife point coming out of her shoe. It was just.
2: Well, isn't that isn't that why I asked if yeah. I always used it? He used all the mm-hmm. stuff people half remembered yeah. from the James yeah. Bond film. What was what I found interesting about this again? Something I had never noticed until I rewatched it today for this discussion. Everyone's made a big thing about Penelope Phoebe Waller bridger being brought on to pump up the script for No mm-hmm. Time to Die, as being like the first time a woman has written a Bond film. A woman oh, wrote really? this. Or it's, is credited as working mm. on the script. Joanna, I'd have to look it up. Oh, hold on, I don't know where I would look that up. I'm have to look at IMDb. Um, yeah, there's a, there is a woman credited on the script as working on. Um, let me go to IMDb and double check. From Russia with love, money Moneybunny. This is cracking podcast. It's Joanna something. And Joanna sure Harwood. She is a leg. that's it there is a woman credited who also co-wrote
0: um was one of the writers on Dr. No
2: according to Wikipedia (laughs) yeah so so she is not so she is not the first woman to punch up a James Mm -hmm. Bond script and that may be why Rosa Klebb is such an interesting character and it may also be why um Tatiana gets her own agency at the end true true
0: um and uh yeah, and and again, that's a really, really tightly done scene. And she's, she's one of the better Bond women, Tatiana. Like you know, she's not as yes. um, she's not
2: in every conceivable yeah. way. <laughs>
0: she's gorgeous. She's absolutely gorgeous. But there's a
2: yes, she absolutely. And we get that typical
0: is. oh James, but they take her beyond just like <laughs> I. I is, Ursula Andress is nothing. Is not hard in the eyes at all. I, I know,
2: but the thing with Ursula Andress is
0: she. Yeah, that's just because I don't remember her doing anything in
2: Doctor No, <laughs> except for walking out of the yeah, water. Yeah, she is. She is. Yeah, she is the criticism of a Bond mm-hmm. woman, in that she walks out of the water. She looks stunning in that bikini, and that's it. She says nothing. She does nothing. She contributes nothing to the plot. Titania essentially is the plot. Yeah. They bring her in purely. To stir Bond into action. It's her defection that gets the British Secret Service interested in what's going on. And then obviously she's part of it. Now he's obviously manipulating mm-hmm. her. My favourite bit being the scene where they're tapping into the conversation and all the old men of, of, of MI6 are listening in and they kick poor money <laughs> penny out. And uh she, she's all well, will you make love to me all day and all night, James? Oh, all the time. Now tell me about <laughs> the <lecture."> lacter. <laughs> And he's he's all about the mission. He, he doesn't give a shit about Paul Tattano. Well, and and to,
0: and to the the red credit, like you know, they they have her pull the trigger at the end, but that was not something that you saw coming because she's not an agent. She's a secretary, essentially.
1: She, she's, she, a clerk.
0: she's a clerk. So, yeah. so you're yeah. not going to have her be, um, an, an action here. You're you're going to have her in that role. Um, yeah, and. Uh, <sighs> I'm I'm I hope I'm getting the name right. Lois Maxwell was the name of the actress who played Money Penny for like twenty. Like yeah. I I love even even in the in the further on into her role and into the more movies I always loved her and the interaction, especially her interaction with Connery. Her and Connery had a lot of chemistry,
1: mm.
0: and uh, it was always a joy to see those um, those scenes together.
2: Yeah, and even the dreaded rear projection doesn't really raise its head in this one until the boat scenes no, at the end. It's,
0: it's really bad in some of the later movies, especially in the in the car chase scenes and stuff.
2: And and Dr. No yeah. It's terrible.
0: Yeah, uh, it's almost comical in that sense. <laughs> so
2: yes, there's a reason that's a yeah. I meme.
0: Mean. So, um, but you moving on, like so so, um, the spy who loved me is a movie that came out. Now we we've. I've never actually read. Uh, I've only read two of the two of the novels total, and I have to go back and and I know my library has all of them, so um, I at least want to read Casino Royale and, and a couple of the other ones. I've read The Man with the Golden Gun. And I've read From Rush with Love. I remember checking this out of the library, and never actually reading it back when I was younger. I don't know why, but from what I understand, this is just basically they took the title because um, because the, the yes. and, and as you said, the The Spy Who Loved Me was a novel that. Fleming basically disowned anyway, um, so. Yeah. But this premiered in, in 1977, a year which nothing else came out. <laughs> no. 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 Nothing
2: no. of import happened no. in no. 1977.
1: No. Anyway, oh, yeah, yeah, because
0: that won Best Picture, yeah, so.
2: Yeah. Anyhow, it's. The, <laughs> <laughs> I don't
0: know. Spy Lemony comes out in, in 77. Roger Moore is in his third film. It's the tenth film in the franchise. It's Roger's back. Yeah, this was my favorite of the of the Roger Moore movies, and and funny, I didn't see any Roger Moore movies in their entirety until college. My roommate, we both brought you know videotapes with us to the because it was the nineties, you know, it was before DVD became huge, and um, so we all had stuff on VHS, and I had all the Connery movies, and he had all the Moore movies, and I think out of all of them, the one I didn't really. I don't remember seeing all of you of you to a kill. I don't, I remember seeing parts of it, but we we watched all of the movies at one point or another. And uh, the, my two favorite of the more movies were The Spy Who Loved Me and For Your Eyes Only. And this one is uh, the plot. This is the crazy billionaire trying to take over the world. Plot. Um, it it recite.
2: The plot is gold. Yeah. It is. <sighs> Basically, they decided that to remake yeah, Goldfinger. Yeah. Now they do it exceptionally
0: Goldfinger well. Goldfinger with a little bit of the of, uh, "You Only Live Twice" because "You Only Live Twice" has the spectres stealing the space capsules. This has um, Stromberg, who's the name of the, um, the the billionaire, stealing two nuclear submarines—one from the Soviet Union, one from the USSR—and I believe his plot is his plan, his al Ghul plan. <laughs> Is mm-hmm. to launch missiles from them, so it starts World War Three because he wants to set up some sort of like everybody lives under the sea civilization or something. Uh, am I? I think that was his plan. It, it's one of those like crazy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it. Is it really is awesome? like
0: it, it is a it is a cobra commander plan it is like what is going on here the whole point of it is just to get some really cool set pieces and um the the reason i picked it is because it's one of the other movies where bond is working directly with the russians in this case because the russians are as upset as everybody else that this sub has gone missing so they they get their best agent <sighs> Triple X.
2: Triple X.
0: <laughs> Played by Barbara Bach. <laughs> um, on it. Uh, and, and now, now, granted, one of the cooler things about her character, now, you know, um, th- there are large portions of the movie where she's kind of the damsel in distress and she's helpless. But she's also a really, really good spy. And she's got it out for him because the beginning of the movie, and this has one of the best opening sequences of a Bond movie. Yep. Um, the very, when we see, we see him and her get introduced, like in the middle of the middle of some sort of mission or whatever on vacation or whatever, because he's, he's in bed and he's in bed with a woman who is a mole. They're out, you know, it's a bunch of Russians who are out to kill him. And he's in like Switzerland in the Alps or whatever. So he gets his call for the mission. He gets up and he, he goes out on skis and she calls like all the agents and the agents, there's a ski chase, rear projection here and there, in in some of the shots, close ups of more that doesn't completely take you out of it because I remind myself this is 1977, <laughs> so you don't have digital mm. effects. Um, but it has that great scene from what I understand and just doing a little research on this movie was a stand up and cheer moment, especially at the premiere of him going over a cliff. And the score completely stopping too, and the, yeah. the stuntman falling and falling and falling and falling, and the shoot opening and the shoot shoot has the union jack on it, and then the
2: because he's a secret
0: agent. Well, this is this is the thing about this, and I wrote and I wrote this down. <laughs> Bond is a superhero in this movie because because he's yes he is he's a
2: superhero throughout. Yeah,
0: and and it's almost like. It's not necessarily a children's movie because you don't have an agent named Triple X in a kids movie, but at the same time, there is a younger appeal to him than um, than say Connery. I guess I, I don't know if that makes makes a lot of sense. It was like, but also um, he's a superhero and he has a supervillain because Stromberg's headquarters is basically the Legion of Doom headquarters from the Super Friends. It's this ocean fortress thing. That would have made a great toy.
2: So, But this movie works. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. The Spy Who Loved Me is just, just yeah. great fun. I mean, you, you've got to love the, a secret agent who leaves in a bright yellow <laughs> ski suit with nothing on his yeah, feet to remember because he's just been busy. With his Union Jack parachute, and it's like they've just completely thrown out the window by the time this one arrives that he's a yeah. secret spy. Everybody knows him. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows what job he does. He's the worst secret agent in the world. But it's just so oh, much yeah. fun, this film. Yeah. It's just like, where are you going, James? I need you. So sort does of yeah. England, and you've got Roger Moore. And his eyebrow raising best throughout this entire movie. You've got Jaws, who is, who is distinctly mm-hmm. memorable in this film. You've got Anya Amasova, who is, is quite insipid. Let's be brutally honest, but she looks good. And in the opening, he kills a pretender to the throne. Michael Billington was oft mooted to be a replacement for mm-hmm. Roger Moore. So he kills off the man who could have been the next James Bond, and I agree entirely with you. It is Moore's best one next to From Russia, yeah. From Russia With Love, For Your Eyes Only. But For Your Eyes Only was written not for Roger Moore, mm. and Roger Moore is actually forced to do some acting in For Your Eyes Only because it was written for a new Bond and it's a little bit grittier than his other ones. But one of the do thing, one of the things I do love about For Your Eyes Only is he finally acknowledges age. Yeah where they have that young girl flirting with him and he's like, come along, girl, I'll buy you an ice cream. <laughs> and it's just absolutely great. But The Love Me is brilliant. And it's got a cracking team. And you can't go wrong with the James Bond film that has a cracking you know, it's, team. Yeah, I think uh, um, the theme, the Carly Simon theme,
0: is um, easily one of the top five. Especially, and I, I mm. don't know if it won an Oscar, but I know it was nominated. And it was um, <clears throat> it was one of her biggest hits. Um, and, and the Moore era has, I mean, Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger aside, which I think is up there with, as far Thunderball, Thunderball. yeah. Um, and then she did Diamonds Are Forever, which, you know, um, uh, the Nancy Sinatra, You will Live Twice is, I, I, is good, but it's the, the, the tune got sampled in that Robbie Williams movie, Robbie Williams song in the late 90s, so now I can think of as Millennium. Yeah. But, uh, but the Moore era had some of the, more notable starting with the McCartney song live and let die and then yeah. going in through the it had some of the more notable uh notable Bond themes and yeah you're right this is this is also a, a movie that shows that they had like money to play with in terms of the budget like all that on location shooting especially in Egypt and being mm-hmm. able to use that huge like Temple of Ramsey's Set for that one chase scene and shootout with uh, and, and and fight with Jaws, where he's throwing like huge blocks at them and things like that, and they're you know they're ramming him with the car and stuff. And Marvin Hamlish drops a Lawrence of Arabia reference in the middle of you know them having to walk back from the, from there, which is like <laughs> there are times where I thought his score was really was good, and there were times where I was like, okay, Marvin, you're being a little too cheeky here. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you're not you're not being you yeah, yeah. and
0: you're leaning a little too 70s in with some of the disco sounding
2: Yeah, the new James yeah. Bond theme being the biggest yeah. defender in that yeah. regard. <laughs> Bond 00, uh, 007 1977 mm-hmm. it's called, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just like uh, which is cuz you compare it to Thingio as well the from Your Russia with Love is the first appearance of mm-hmm. 007. Which was John Barry's alternate James Bond theme.
1: Yeah.
2: So to have this one called James Bond 1977 seems a bit cheeky, but it's you know, it is what it is, and it's got the Lotus Esprit. Oh, actually. I was just about to mention that. God, I, I love it. I
0: love it. I love the. I love the all the gadgets and stuff. It's right out of. Um, you may or may not remember this uh, video game from the late '80s called Spy Hunter, which. Yeah, it, that's Fires, basically yeah, yeah and that's Fires. basically it has all the different things that the car from Spy Hunter does. So that you know, um, and then uh, and then it has that great scene where they go underwater and it turns into the sub, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and then they drive it up onto the beach. I'm and like, it, I lo- that entire sequence. It's just again, it's 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 a
2: toy. my favorite bit of that is when he winds the window down and hands yes. the guy the fish, <laughs> and it's funny until you go. I thought it was supposed to be watertight. This car. You're just like, ah, uh, you just go with it. How <laughs> did <laughs> that fish yeah. get in there? <laughs> and it's just more delivers that bit though. Not a line of dialogue, and it's hysterically. Yeah, done. he. <laughs> Um, but, but the ending,
0: like I said, it's it's the ending fights are you know they have to go up against Jaws. They have the whole thing with the killer sharks that Stromberg has because he's obsessed with living under the sea. And he takes Stromberg under the sea. <laughs> he takes Stromberg out. It's actually a pretty good scene because they're sitting from end to end at the table, and Stromberg's got the the gun. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the scene, and I just watched this a couple weeks ago. Stromberg has this great – one of those great villain things of instead of a trapdoor, he's just basically got a pistol mounted to the other side of a table. And
2: Yeah, because you've got Roger Moore delivering the – you've shot your throat line.
0: (laughs) And he just just turns it around on him. So it's a great – because the Blofelds in those types of characters were never actually – uh, they they were there was something very Lex Luthor about them, you know. They were never yeah. a physical threat in terms of the way that Jaws would be is in this movie. And Jaws makes it out alive because he's in Moonraker. I, I I laughed out loud at the very very end where they get into Stromberg's life raft, which um, is, is a pretty you know pimped out life raft because it's Stromberg. And I think Bond has this line, like, anybody who likes Dom 52 can't be all that bad because he sees the bottle of champagne. That <laughs> made me laugh out loud. I was like, that's such a great line.
2: Well, that, that goes to From Russia With Love where Bond spots that Red Grant's a bad guy because he orders mm-hmm. red wine with chicken.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, okay.
2: <laughs> no Englishman no, would order red wine with chicken.
1: <laughs> but it's... But it's like I
0: said, it's great fun, and 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 like I said, with with all the other, with a lot of the other ones being some sort of being a Cold War spy thing. But this involves a little bit, little bit more of the politics than say some of the other more ones and stuff like that. And um, I really wanted to cover it partially because it is, it out of the more ones, it's you know one of my two favorites. Uh,
2: yeah, the thing with this one is it is genuinely funny, as opposed to slightly mm. campy funny. He's got some great lines in this movie, and the, it, you get the feeling they're being written for Roger Moore for the first time in his tenure, because he's got that brilliant all those feathers and he still can't fly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and you cannot talk about the Spy Love Me without his line at the end: "What are you doing, Double O Seven? Keeping the British end up, sir." You know, when Roger had quality dialogue, nobody yeah, did it. And ever. he, and the funny thing is, uh, it, it's a line
0: that works with him in the way that, I mean, I'm sure Connery could have made it work, but it's it's like it is a Roger Moore line, you know? <laughs> it's just.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know that Connery could have delivered that, keeping the British end up line as well as yeah, Roger Moore it's... does. He, he probably could have pulled off the yes. Feathers line. But the way Roger just says that yeah. is just brilliant. Yeah. I just love it. It makes me smile every yeah. single time. And there
0: there's like so one of the, the the one of the things stolen another thing stolen right from Goldfinger is that at the end of Goldfinger I think it was Goldfinger's plans like to to blow up Fort Knox or something and
2: yeah, to to make his gold yeah. more valuable, he was going to destroy all yeah. the other and, gold. Um, and and he's got Bond diffuses
0: the the bomb and struggles with diffusing it, but he defuses it, and of course, it stops with seven seconds left. So that you see the the timer says 007. Here, it's this whole thing where um, they're trying to. They, they, I think they disarm one of the nukes, and they're trying to to. Um, to the other one's going to go off, and they're trying to make it so that – oh, no. It, the, two, the two subs are out there. They're going to fire, and they're set to the, – he's trying to start World War III, kind of the mutually assured mm-hmm. destruction principle that that the U.S. and the Soviet Union are um, based on. And we see this we see this in a number of Cold War movies. We see this um, used to comedic effect in Dr. Strangelove. Because, you know, they have a doomsday, de- they have the doomsday machine that once it gets set off, it's like, forget it, it's all over and it happens um, in the middle of an argument. <laughs> uh, and then in um, like, you know, the, the Terminator, essentially that starts because once Skynet launches the USS missiles, the Soviets respond. And then in a number of those like nuclear Holocaust movies, sometimes they went to great pains to make sure that it seemed like one side didn't fire before the other. They kind of did this simultaneously. So Stromberg knows how to do this. And what Bond does is instead of defusing a nuclear bomb, which even that's a stretching it, you know, for, for this type of James Bond, they're able to change the trajectory of the program so that the subs fire at one another, I believe, if I'm, if I'm really – And, and, and yeah. so he essentially does set off a nuke in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, <laughs>
2: But it's a yes. harmless
0: uke. Just like all the testing ones they did.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But but you're right. It's like everybody's following this guy's lead because he rescues, like, all of the soldiers from the brig on, on Stromberg's lair, and he's leading an army in the ending battle because Stromberg has his own army. <laughs> Where do these billionaires get these armies from? I don't...
2: Like, I don't know because would you go to work for somebody left and right kills the people yeah. who work for him? Because I wouldn't. I love what I've just recently reread Star Wars: Earth to the Empire, and one of the things I like about that book is that Grand Admiral Thrawn actually points out that killing your own men is actually really <laughs> dumb. <laughs> You know, if you want loyalty and you want them to follow you and you want them to follow your orders, killing them when something goes wrong is not the best way to engender trust in your commanding officer. <laughs> yeah, Vader,
0: Vader far, followed Tarkin's lead a little too much on that and didn't listen to what his daughter had said. What was the line, the, the closer you tighten your grip, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip yeah. through your fingers. Like, you know, she knew exactly what was going on there. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, uh, it's just it, it is a little bit daft when yeah, you think about yeah.
0: it. Well, at least like I brought up Cobra Commander and and the the brilliant the brilliance of that it's, it was a kids thing, but basically Cobra was a multi level marketing scheme. In that Cobra Commander lured these people in by basically selling them Amway and made his fortune on that, and then they basically it was it was a front for a paramilitary organization. <laughs> Stromberg's just a billionaire. Uh, you know, they, they don't we don't we don't see his recruiting process. We just basically see him him, you know, when he's already got the army. So we just assume that maybe he just found people who were, you know, it was the 70s. There was a there was an energy crisis going on, you know, people were out of work. Maybe he just hired some down in the luck people who are like, you know, hey, I'll train you to be a soldier and pay you and and feed you well
2: and are like, all right. <laughs> so <laughs> Well, I think they've touched on that in a couple of recent Nick Spencer comics mm. for Marvel, like the people who work for um, Galactus, who are the yellow suits. Yeah, are the AIM. Yeah, it's that most of the people who work for AIM are just regular <laughs> yeah. clubs, and this is their way out. This is their way out of the ghetto or whatever uh, is to work because you're highly paired. You're well paired to work yeah. for, for AIM. Yeah.
0: And to, to wrap this part of it up, it's it's uh, it's a. Like I said, there was a there was a kid aspect to this, and that this would be the James Bond I would have wanted to play when I was when I was younger. If 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 we were playing on the playground in the same way I played like Han Solo or Luke Skywalker or something, because of all of just the over the top gadgets and the and the cool villain type of aspect to it, you know, it it it. You're right. It's it's a spy movie without him actually, with him barely being a spy. You know, so the, some of the scenes in Egypt are very. Espionage esque, in some way or another, or at least there's just a little bit of banter back and forth in the middle of a club. But everybody seems to know who the hell this guy is.
2: Yeah, everyone knows who he is by this point. Yeah. There's no secrets. Yeah, at and all. it's
0: it, and it's funny because um, you know, again, spy novels and spy movies have been going on since. It they really are, they really are a genre of the Cold War, or at least one that originates or, or hits its peak with the Cold War. And uh, there was a recent show on fx uh it, i don't know if you if you've ever watched it but the americans with carrie russell and uh, oh
2: yeah, with carrie russell
0: um, yeah really done well it you know the the story the story is that they're a they're a russian um family who were essentially placed in america in the 60s the two of them and uh you know they ended up having kids because they were that, that deep 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 cover you know kgb agents and their new neighbor at the beginning of the show is Nolan em- uh, Noah Emmerich, uh plays the FBI agent who is one of the heads of the counter espionage division it, domestically. And they did you know about six seasons and it's it's this great and the finale is great too. So it's it's just one of those great spy shows that really goes to um, great lengths to. Try to seem as realistic as possible in terms of with also adding a, a fair amount of you know disguises and Mission Impossible type of stuff here and there and you know crazy yeah. covers,
2: so it's the anti alias, it, is what you are saying. Whereas Alias is clearly the Roger Moore era, of Jim. Bondfall. Yes, <laughs> but I <laughs> but Roger Roger Moore made a Bondfall oh, yeah, yeah, friendly
0: yeah, friendly. yeah, 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 and and I oh, will yeah. I will watch and rewatch Alias you know, because Jennifer Garner is, you know, she's on my, she's on my laminated list, so to speak. <laughs> so, yes. Um, but I, I wanted to briefly talk about the living daylights because like I said, this was my first bond movie. This was Timothy Dalton in one of two movies. Um, I don't remember License to kill being all
2: that particularly good. Uh, license to kill is what if james bond ended up in an episode of Mm. miami vice and it's actually quite quite good i quite like license to kill because it's so completely different from all of the others i i
0: I only am going by its reputation because i have not seen it since 1989 so or 1990 whenever it came out Mm. so the living daylights is um is Dalton having been given the role. And and I remember a lot of the reviews were talking about how like he's kind of, they, they referred to him as monogamous because he's not, he's not constantly in bed with women through the entire um, movie. And part of that has to do with the fact that this is like 87 and this is where you, you see a lot of fewer and fewer of movies where men are constantly betting women because the, the, this is the height of the AIDS crisis. So it's, It's in the public consciousness, but at the same time, he um, the the plot, and this is the reason I just wanted to mention it briefly. The plot is that a Russian um, a a Russian operative is supposedly defecting, and and this is you know you had people defecting in the sixties and seventies, but the eighties is really because because the Soviet Union is starting to fall apart. The eighties is when you get some really high profile defections from the U.S. from the USSR over to um, Britain or the US or whatever, um, for instance, toward the end of the Soviet Union, like Nadia Komenich, the gymnast, defected over and you had other people in the arts and things like that. And um, so that plot point really works for this era. But the thing is, this this guy's not really defecting. He's working for this American expatriate. Played by Jodan Baker, um, <laughs> who's kind of a Cobra commander. He's like, he he has his own little private army. He's he's an arms dealer. And there's this whole arms sale thing going on, which is also very 80s. And they end up, and, and he's he's with um, Marion uh, Dabo's character, who is this cellist, who was the girlfriend of the guy who was defecting. And basically, the first half to two-thirds of the Living Daylights is a big chase scene of him trying to get her back into the West from where they were in Russia and, um, him kind of having a little bit of a rivalry with one of his fellow agents. And then it ends up in Afghanistan with him working alongside the yeah. <laughs> Muj- Mujahideen and, and uh, like you talking about, yeah, you God, you're talking about, talk about eighties stuff, um, starring the guy who was, um, who played the Islamic terrorist villain in True Lies? Uh, he's the, he's the head of the Mujahideen and everything. So they're, they're fighting the Russians. They're fighting. It's it is very of its time. Even though you've got some really cool action set pieces in the Afghanistan segments, it's kind of the weaker. It's kind of the weaker part of the movie. Uh, the better parts are the first half, two thirds when they're in Europe mostly. There's this great. We talked about the skiing scene. This is this great scene where they slide down a mountain on a
2: cello. <laughs> nothing yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like so the, the thing with the living daylights is it's at its best when it's actually adapting the short story mm-hmm. of the living daylights which is like the first 20 yeah. minutes of the film and then after that it kind of veers off a little bit and when you watch it back nowadays it's nowhere near the genre breaking film that they promised mm-hmm. us it would be with, the, with Roger Levin and Timothy Dalton coming, taking over. There are scenes in this film that are straight out of a Roger Moore movie. The exploding yeah. milk bottles. The cello scene where they flash the passports. And the problem with that is they should have embraced that Timothy Dalton is a completely different actor and a completely different bond, really, to Roger Moore. This essentially is a stealth reboot mm-hmm. before such a thing was a yeah. thing. You know, suddenly it's, it's a, it's a new money penny. It's a new bond. It's a new M. Still the same old Q, but yeah. what are you going to do? And essentially it's a stealth reboot because you get to hear Roger Moore could conceivably have been playing the same character Sean Connery played. So essentially all the Connery and Moore ones kind of exist within their own continuity because Moore was clearly married to who George Lazenby married, which was Tracy because he visits her <laughs> grave and she eyes only. Almost mentioned in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yes, she's almost mentioned in The Spy Who Loved Me. By the time you get to Timothy Dalton, Timothy Dalton cannot possibly be the same Mm. man that Sean Connery and Roger Moore was playing. Now, this isn't me advocating the stupid theory that James Bond 007 is just a code name. (laughs) No! (laughs) It's the same character, but clearly... All those adventures either happened in a much coalesced amount of time or we're now accepting Marvel's sliding yeah. timeline and that kind of thing. Whereas when you get to Daniel Craig, you're clearly – this mm-hmm. is a reboot. Well, and,
0: and the same thing is – the thing about these is that you don't need a tight continuity to James Bond, too. It's just
2: – I don't know. like I. No, I think that's why from Russia would love yeah. stuck out this time. It's a direct sequel yeah, to yeah. Doctor No, which yeah. wouldn't happen again until Daniel yeah. Craig. All of them are... Yeah, the so this back. is
0: a little bit of a soft reboot. And granted, Brosnan is a soft reboot as well in, t- in certain terms. My favorite... One of my favorite scenes in GoldenEye is when they meet the new M. And it's... It, I had no idea who Judi Dench was at the time. Well, Sacrilege! Sacrilege <laughs> <Judy> National <Dench. laughs> what i Judi Dench. I know now. Her dressing him down and essentially calling him a a relic of the Cold War, is...
2: Sexist, sexist, misogynist dinosaur. Oh, it's so great.
0: It's just, and...
2: Yeah, but the thing about that is, that's the things we love about him. These are the things that I don't like. When people, say James Van's past his prime, and he's, you know, he is a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, and he should always remain thus. The world around him... Can change, but he remains a sexist, misogynist. Yeah, but dinosaur. it's, it's a,
0: the reason I like that scene is not because she calls him out and that he is. It's because it sets up something new about M. That like I don't know. I just mm. I like how it sets up her as a character that is going to be a. Um, and I like her as M. Um, you know.
2: Yeah, she's so right as M, she's better it, with Daniel it, Craig. It sets
0: M up as um, more than just kind of like. His boss, who kind of shrugs at his antics, and I and it, and it's not over the top, you know, Mr. Spacely is screaming Jetson all the time or something like that, mm-hmm. but it, it's just it's a great little scene and and he is kind of like he kind of shrugs it off eventually and and you know, um, Brosnan does the whole of course the, the straightening his tie and the tank thing it's like <laughs> golden is a great movie mm-hmm. but with the Living Daylights you're right he couldn't have been more because a Moore had gotten so old.
2: Yeah, this, these are that That's not Roger Moore. Yeah, yeah, it's fault. just. And this isn't like a character who's allowed mm-hmm. to age. This isn't like William Shatner playing exactly. James T. Kirk for exactly. forty years. Kirk's allowed mm-hmm. to get older. You know, James Bond yeah. isn't. James Bond resolutely stays in between yeah. the ages of forty-four yeah, and forty-nine. And, then... and even Daniel Craig's
0: mm-hmm. past that now. And... Dalton, to his credit, like I love the action sequences and this and all of the spy stuff with Dalton because they took advantage of the fact that Dalton was younger, so they could do a little more. the 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 romantic angle with him was it was a little too nighttime soap, you know. He was a little too it was very eighties <laughs> and it was very of that time, um, but it, it was a little too much into that. And of course, they have the the strongman guy in that. Is, um, I'm gonna mispronounce this guy's last name. Uh, the actor is Andreas Wis- Wisniewski, um, who plays Necros. whose only other role that I recognized was he's Tony in Die Hard. Who is the guy who gets killed and has the? <laughs> he's wearing the sweatshirt. Now I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho! So that's him. Ho ho ho! Listeners, if you've never seen The Living Daylights, hey, go see it. But you have to picture Larry Mullen Jr. from U2 as a Bond villain who strangles people with a Walkman headphone cord <laughs> while wearing a members-only jacket.
2: I I would love to see Larry <laughs> Mullen Jr. But doesn't a Bond it look gun. like Oh my bon- <coughs> Yes, it does. Bond Oh my a God. And it goes to what you what you said earlier on as well. From Russia with Love doesn't work in the year of no, mobile phones. Because no. the whole idea is once they're on the train, they're mm-hmm. safe. Because you can't get a communique yeah. off the train. Well that's out yeah. the window now. And then you've got living daylights where you strike people with <laughs> headphones with Watmans. We've all got wireless yeah, yeah. earbuds now. So
0: it, but but the thing is is that um whereas other movies from these eras can look very dated. Both of those movies from Russia with Love and and The Living Daylights, they're of their time. And there's a there's a difference between feeling dated and feeling of mm. their time. And and um, I think it's because the things around it don't lean so heavily into the conventions of the decade, the 1960s,
2: the 1980s. He's an out-of-time character mm. in and of himself. So the films yes. still work because yes. he's very much this guy who doesn't have a work-life balance because he doesn't have a life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and well, that, that's, I think that's that, that's a great note to end on is that the fact that this character has endured in film for almost sixty years now, and I, I think it'll keep going on as well. I mean, obviously, it's going to go on as long as these movies keep making money, but they don't feel the need to make them period
2: pieces, you know? You no, know, they can just they can update Bond as as long as there are always going to be threats to national security, mm-hmm. of which there are. And clever writers will come up ways around that. Like yeah. like the new queue. I dare say I can do more damage on my laptop before my first cup of old grey than you can manage in the field in four months. But then you, you're still gonna need somebody to pull the trigger, as he points out. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as you update the world around him and the political situation around him, there's always going to be spies. There's always going to be the Secret Service. There's always going to be people who need monitoring. And those people just change as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And I see, Yeah. So I, there's always going to be a James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, as well, mm. can I, I also want to say can we just leave Bond alone as well? You know, if you don't like him, if you think he's sexist or misogynistic or is had his day, go and watch Bourne. <laughs> go and do something else. Leave our James Bond. We like James Bond as he is. We like the cars. We like the gadgets. We like the suits. We like that he is everything we aspire to want to be, but know we never can be. Yes. We know he's not real. We wouldn't speak to women like that or treat them like that in <laughs> real life. It's a fantasy. Yeah. Let us have our Bondian fantasy. Yeah.
0: Well, and and like you said, when they, they sometimes play with cha- the changing world around him and, and kind of wink at the camera in that way, because they know that as a, a large portion of the audience isn't taking this so literally, you know, and we are having yeah. fun with it.
2: Um now I, I think you would agree with me now There's all this there's all this oh sorry go No go ahead go ahead. I I was just gonna say No Time to Die has been pushed back again Ugh. as you would expect in the era of pandemic. Yeah, yeah. But there's all this big the the you the reg the usual suspects are kicking off that you've got a woman playing double O seven and they're replacing him. No they're not. The code name 007 is now open. He mm. inherited it when somebody before him died, that's how it works. Yeah. So stop getting bent out of shape about things because the fun here is clearly going to be bond having to react to a woman has replaced him. Yeah. Because that's what you do with a raging misogynist. You give him a woman who's a boss. Yeah. Well, they've done that. Yeah. So now you replace him with a woman, and you see how he reacts to it. That's updating the character. Get yeah. off your fucking eye ass about it and just accept it. Bond's not going to mm-hmm. change, and he shouldn't. But the round him change all of that.
0: Yeah. So I guess um, I wouldn't even really begin to guess. Who do you think they would re- have? They they haven't announced anybody replaced Daniel Craig yet. I don't think. Um, who would Who would you? Um, float for that,
2: that i role. want the guy i want the guy who played paul dark in the recent bbc adaptation of paul dark um i believe his name is aiden turner he's probably best known for being in the the bbc version of um god it was a low budget tv show on bbc3 he played a vampire mm-hmm. and he lived with a ghost and a werewolf being human is what it was called. He was Killian in The Hobbit, which is where people may know him from. I want him because, I, as of this writing, he's thirty-seven years old, as of this recording, and he's got the swarthy good looks. And Paul Dart proved he can do heartthrob, and that's what would be my pick for the next James Bond. It's not going to be Henry Cavill. No, as good as Cavill no. could be, he's, he's Superman. Yeah, they're yeah. not going to employ Superman as James Bond. Yeah. And I think he arguably missed his chance when Daniel Craig got it. Mm-hmm. And I know people float Idris. Elba, apparently, it was down to him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know people float Idris Elba, which would be interesting. Um, I think he. I think he might be a little too old at this point. I would. Idris
2: lo- is now. Idris is now the same age as Daniel Craig. Okay. Yeah. Although you're not going to get a ten-year contract, three-film deal out of Idris Elba. No, but at the same time, I would. I would
0: love to see him in a Bond movie. Um, maybe not as a villain. Maybe yeah. as an ally if or something. A
2: golden art situation again. Yeah. Yeah. Put him in as another double O. Yeah. Oh, I would love great. that. Love to Idris, see him the... I also think Idris Idris Elba is the wrong side of famous as well. Mm, yeah. If you look back over history; they have never employed anyone who is famous to be James Bond. Mm-hmm. The closest is Pierce Brosnan, but they had their eye on him for decades before he actually got the role. Yeah. Cause... Which is why I think Aidan Turner would be the way to go. He's not super famous, mm-hmm. but Paul Dark has given him enough of a cachet in this country for everyone to go, oh yeah, I could see him as Bond. Yeah. Alright. I'm not leaning towards any of the two Game of Thrones guys. I think Richard Madden's too short mm-hmm. and Jon Snow's too squinty. <laughs> <laughs> he is, isn't he? Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah he is. He is. Jo- jo- Jon Snow always looks like He's always struggling to catch up with what the last person has said. He's all, he always looks like he's too slow to figure out what's going on in the conversation, which worked for Jon Snow. Yeah, but it's not it's not Jim. James Bond needs to be the smartest yeah, guy he, in the room, he, James, not the guy who's catching up with what was said four yeah, conversations uh, ago.
0: James Bond is four conversations ahead of half the people in this room, you know. He, yes. He, uh,
2: and and yeah. that's that's one of the he, he shouldn't he shouldn't look he shouldn't look like somebody's just hit him in the face with a brick. <laughs> That's that's. All. Yeah. I have nothing against him. I'm sure he's a lovely yeah. man, but no. Yeah, aiden Turner. Yeah, it's my
0: vote. And, and and I'm just gonna say, like you know, I just recommend as we wrap up here, I just recommend going back through the back catalog of of these movies. Um, you know, I watched these three, and I'm going. I still have to get through. Um, a couple of the Craig movies and um, may, may rewatch some of the ones that I absolutely love from, from the prior eras. So, uh, but, but, you know, thank you. Thank you for coming on here. This was, this was exactly what I was hoping it would be. It was just really, really fun to talk to somebody else about, about James Bond in this, in this regard, especially somebody who's like had such a long time fandom for the character.
2: No, it's it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, I I love James Bond. Yeah. I've always loved James Bond. Even even at the stupidest, they're entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's not there's not an unenjoyable James Bond film. There are bad James yeah. Bond films. There's not an unenjoyable one. Yeah, the 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 bad ones you just
0: kind of you just go with it. And that's that's one of the better things about the yeah. franchise. Like even at its most ridiculous, like I said, ninjas in a volcano. You go with it
2: because it's because it's just we're, <laughs> like because they because I think what it is sexist, misogynist dinosaur. Yeah, yeah you you've just listed off his best yeah. point
0: because they commit, and I think that's the thing about the the franchise is they commit to this. They wink at the camera sometimes, but they're never really trying to deconstruct you know, or make a point or something like that. It's mm. just, it is, it is just, you, you, you are getting what you, you're giving you what you came for. And, and I think that's what, I think that's what, what, how this franchise endures too. So, um, yeah, well, uh, before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you?
2: You, you did it at the beginning. I know. I have policy, which delights where I just, it's fine. I waffle on about whatever the hell I want to. Because you know, and I do the Overlooked Dark Knight with Michael, where we talk about Batman, uh, over, underrated Batman stories whenever humanly possible.
0: Yeah, both are great shows. The Palace of Glittering Lights is a show near. It's, it's your, it's my show. show. Basically, well, and my show, an and my show is, um, is uh, views from the long box. Just so. <laughs> <We're>,
2: <laughs> there's a lot of interbreeding going on here. Yeah, we we uh,
0: we all take our cues from each other, and the Overlooked Dark Knight is is. Um, it, it, it's hitting my sweet spot of Batman, especially as you're going through the Starlin stuff, because it's just it, it's it's an era that I um, was not there for, but I've gone back and reread and everything, so it's it, it's making me like because well, we're, we're, the character again,
2: <laughs> we're done, yeah, we're done with all that, mm-hmm. that's all done and dusted in the cat
0: and then um, I loved your Spider-Man coverage, by the way, on because uh, that's. You. you know, I'm I'm not actually that familiar with I haven't read that many stories. Um here and there and then like I have the essential volume that collects um I bought it because it was the one with the night when Stacy died in it. And um I'd never read oh, the story, yeah. so I was like, Oh well They're you know, again, so so it's uh so it was great to great to hear that and, and I think I might go check out some of those uh masterworks if they've they've got them,
2: So the, the dirt cheap on yeah. comics yeah. it was my goal to do the yeah. definitive spider-man stanley run podcast yeah. cool i don't know that i succeeded yeah. but that was my goal it was good i'll give you that so all right well thank
0: you again for coming on um i will be back in a moment to wrap things up so stick around And I'd like to thank Andy for coming on. Uh, Before I sign off, I do have some feedback. And this is from from Ranger Gord, who left a Facebook comment about the last episode. He says, in listening to the Miracle on Ice segment, which I do remember somewhat, I was 16, but there were girls and stuff, you know, so it's a little foggy that way but it really made me recall the earlier 1972 Summit Series that was played between the best of what they called the, quote, Soviet Red Army Team and Team Canada, which was really an all-star team of Canadian-born NHL players. It was an eight-game series, played four games in various cities in Canada and the other four in Moscow, where the cold was really cold to the visiting Canadians. I was nine at the time, and this occurred just after the dreadful Munich Olympic Massacre. But in Canada, the last goal of the last game erased all that. It was one of those great JFK moments. Any Canadian can remember where they were when Paul Henderson scored the game winner. Due to the time difference from the USSR, we were actually allowed out of class to watch it together as a school in the fine arts room. It could have been a Disney movie, and a good CBC miniseries was made of it. It was a true Cold War moment for Canada. Wow, thanks, Gord. I love hearing stories like that, and I'm glad you're listening and enjoying the show. If you've got some comments or feedback on any episode, please send it my way. I would love to hear it, and I will definitely read it on the air. But that'll do it. I'll be back at the end of May with my next episode, and I'm going to be covering the events of March through May of 1991, and I'll spend my pop culture segment looking at the nuclear scare movies of the early 1980s, such as the day after. So until then, check out the show notes on the blog. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this mini-series and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold
1: War.